I V M. We saw some high stakes tension and uncertainty with the Indian Vikram lander recently, as the spacecraft tried to descend safely to the surface of the moon. Executing such a landing on Mars takes all challenges to the next level. People at NASA and JPL call this the seven minutes of terror. It takes seven minutes for a spacecraft to enter the atmosphere of Mars and make it to the surface, and it takes roughly fourteen minutes for information to travel at the speed of light to get to Earth. So, when we first get word about a Mars lander touching the top of the atmosphere, it's already been on the ground, dead or alive, for seven full minutes. How do you build systems that are robust and capable of making intelligent autonomous decisions hundreds of millions of miles away from Earth? And Devero of the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab is here on the Pragati podcast today to tell us all about it. Welcome to the Pragati podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics and international relations. I am your host Pavan Srinath. Our guest today is Anne Devero, who's currently manager for space systems engineering at Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech. Previously, she was the lead flight system engineer for the upcoming Mars 2020 rover. She was previously a part of the entry, descent, and landing team of the Mars Curiosity rover mission. Anne is an electrical engineer by training and has spent close to three decades working at JPL. We recorded this episode outside our studio, but in Bangalore. Anne was in India to talk about space and the upcoming Artemis program by NASA. She was here in Bangalore, and we were able to record this thanks to the U.S. consulate in Chennai. We'll start our conversation with Anne after a short break. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have a announcement for all of you, at least you know the couple of dozen of you who are listening to us on SoundCloud. Come the end of October, early November, we're going to be discontinuing that channel. We're not really going to be making our content available on SoundCloud anymore. So if you are listening on SoundCloud, you can have a number of options. I say the best option is downloading the IVM Podcast app, but if not, you can download another podcasting app, and you'll be able to find our content over there. We have a couple of new shows launching this week. Let me tell you about those. The first is called Boundless. This is hosted by Natasha Malpani Oswal. She reads her poems on mental health, relationships, family, marriage, and many other topics, and narrates personal anecdotes around these poems. Tune in to new episodes every Monday and Wednesday, starting from seventh October. Postcards from Nowhere is hosted by Utsav Mamoria. It's a travel podcast where Utsav talks about his journeys to obscure and fascinating places around the world. He explores the culture, history, and people from these places in the form of stories, and gives you tips and tricks on solo travel. Tune in to new episodes every Thursday. Starting from the 10th of October. Here's what else you got on the IBM Podcast Network this week. On Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Tej Brar, founder and managing director of Third Culture Entertainment. He tells Cyrus the stories behind his tattoos, talks about the upcoming Neon East Festival, and living in different places around the world, from Boston to DC to Delhi. The 150th episode of Simplified is finally here. You sent in your questions and topic suggestions. Now listen to Chuck Narayan and Shrikhet tackle them. On the Habit Coach, Ashton is joined by Shamina Draja and Jessica Gabrielli from Power and Posture. They talk about the importance of arm balancing and how handstands can improve posture and build up core strength. On Tech Careers in the News, Shilatya is joined by Jayant Swami and Namrata Maheshwari, Chief Data Architect and Senior Architect at Accenture, to talk in detail about data points. On Golgappa, Trupti is in conversation with actress Sayali Fatak. They talk about her experience in theatre, acting, as well as dancing. On paperback, Racheta and Satyajit talk to Nirbhay Kanoria, the co-founder of online literary magazine The Curious Reader. He lists his favorite non-fiction books and the trends of reading on digital platforms. 
On Kinetic Living, Coach Urmi shares a surprise to work out on Tabata Tuesdays and on Thriving Thursdays, she shares a story that made her realize just how fragile life is. On Football Shootball, Gaurav Karthik and Siva round up the Premier League weekend and talk about the absolute demolition Bayern Munich inflicted upon Tottenham. On Pulia Bazi, Pranay and Saurabh are joined by Pratik Sinha, editor and co-founder of Alt News. They discuss the anatomy of fake news and its prevalence in today's time. And with that, let's get you on with your shows. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on the Pragati Podcast. It's a pleasure to sit down with you here in Bangalore. Oh, hi. Thank you very much, Papa. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Tell a little bit about uh, what rocket science is um, and see if I can answer any questions you might have. So you're the, um, if I'm getting this right, the flight systems engineer, the lead flight systems engineer for the upcoming Mars 2020 mm-hmm. mission. And it's really exciting that you're putting a one-ton rover on the surface of Mars to look at the biological signatures that might exist. That's one of the mission goals mm-hmm. of you know ancient bacteria or anything else that might have been there on Mars. And also to prepare for future human missions mm-hmm. to Mars and doing a lot of very interesting work there. So I wanted to start off by asking, a lot of the times we think about rocket science as being very difficult. What is rocket science? Can you break that down yeah. for us? Because I think a lot of the times our imagination gets captured by the big thrusters that are employed and you know the liftoff that happens. Yeah. But rocket science is way more yeah. beyond that, right? Yeah, rocket science is funny. So my background is I have a degree in computer engineering and a degree in communications engineering. But inevitably, like when my mom introduced me to someone, she's like, well, she's a rocket science scientist. So clearly there's, I think, a public sort of understanding of rocket science um, where it's anything to do with space or spaceship or something like that. So actually kind of funny, I think a lot of people might know. So I work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Back uh, when we started in the 40s and 50s, we actually did jet propulsion okay. uh but we uh little known fact maybe we haven't done jet propulsion for something like 60 years wow <laughs> yeah well you know so the thing like you mentioned about rocket science you know like oh well it's about you know the big rocket whatever well it turns out that you know over the course of the years you know more and more private companies build rockets uh you know israel in different countries you know have their own rocket programs and so you know sometime back in the day jpl kind of made a tact and said okay well, giant rockets aren't the place where we want to, to set our niche. We're going to do instruments and, and space missions. So somebody else is going to build a rocket for us, um, and we'll do this stuff on top. And so I think, yeah, whenever somebody says rocket scientist, I'm like, mm, I don't really do rockets per se. But I think the general impression of what rocket science is, and I think which is very valid, is all the different disciplines that go into doing a space mission. And this could be an Earth orbiting telescope or an Earth orbiting radar, or also something that goes to the moon or Mars. And so, you know, sometimes people ask me, I'm like, well, you know, I need to get an aeronautical degree and an aerospace degree. And that's completely not true. I mean, we have people who are chemical engineers, who are material scientists engineers, people like me who are bits and bytes, people who do structural design, people who actually do navigation, like the calculation of, you know, when I leave Earth and then the gravity of Mars starts to pull me in. Yeah, so it really takes all kinds. I like to tell people that I'm not 
really that fond of math and it's absolutely true. Like I like abstract concepts better, uh, but you need both sides. You need the people who can do that really detailed stuff and the people, whatever. And so actually my job now is systems engineering and it's really that multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary look at all the different things. I mean, I guess you could call it rocket science. Maybe, <laughs> maybe systems engineering is the rocket science part where you're taking all the bits and bites and pieces together and then you end up with something like a curiosity. Right. And, you know, we've had uh, quite a few uh, space-related episodes on the Pragati podcast in the past. We also have the pleasure of uh, having General Charles Bolden on the show. Oh, yeah. For, for a short episode a while ago. So it's great to get uh, a view from you who's building the systems, which is very complementary to the work that astronauts and many others yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. So could you give us a sense of when you're thinking about systems that are critical to a, a spacecraft you know, especially one that is going to enter the sphere of another planet or the moon or something. What kind of systems become very critical and how do you go about thinking through the most critical parts of the mission? Yeah. I imagine that once things are in space, some of the things are simpler because there's vacuum and you don't have atmosphere and other things mm -hmm. sort of making your system very chaotic. But the moment, say, you're going to the edge of the atmosphere of Mars yeah. and trying to manage that journey from there to the surface of Mars. I'm guessing that the number of variables, number of things coming in become honestly insane. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, people think, I, I think, you know, like, oh, you're going into outer space and outer space is, you know, hard and whatever. And it turns out, I, I like to say, there's a reason they call it space because <laughs> there's a lot of room. Um, generally, you know, if you get yourself on a good trajectory, you know, out of the, the gravity well of the earth, you know, there's really nothing that's going to, you perturb you, you know, with thrusters or if you have, you know, leaks or something, the pressure of solar photons on the spacecraft right. actually perturbs you some, but as you can imagine, these are very slow effects. And so actually it's super, but also you can keep yourself pretty much oriented to the sun slash earth, uh, you know, for both communications and for power. And so it's actually like, that's the easy part of it, but kind of like you were saying at the point where now you have gotten and including the moon, I mean, the moon has a gravity well associated with it. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the atmosphere, uh, you know, that you have to contend with, but still, as soon as you have now, basically a third party, uh, you know, in play, that's when it all kind of gets wacky. And like one of the um, challenge we had with the Curiosity rover is, you know, there's kind of two ways you can get to another planet. So one is you have, or a moon, uh, you can have the thing that carries you there. And so you are always a lander. You are always the thing that, you know, is supposed to be on the surface. Right. You never have to be interplanetary slash moon mission. So like Chandrayaan-2, for example, they did it that way where they had the orbiter, that the orbiter had its own things that it was going to do, by the way, super, super successful. And then the lander was always a lander. It never had to worry about what an orbiter has to think about. It never had to worry about right. pointing to the sun. Uh, the so way in that sense, it's modular. It doesn't have to care yes, about things that yes. happen before it in the mission. Right. And so from a uh, systems engineering point of view, that's a really nice, clean design. Uh, because I don't have to worry about the lander, say, getting confused because it has to orient itself in space, which landers don't usually have to do. Uh, when we are working on our Europa lander uh, concept, for example, that would be, you know, uh, toward the end of the next decade, we have a, a similar sort of concept where there would be a thing that carried you to the planet 
uh, to, to the moon in this case, uh, the moon of Europa. And then there would be the thing that landed, but it was a very clean, functional distinction between them. Okay. Now, Curiosity, which, as you say, is a giant, big boy, 900 kilograms, and then Mars 2020 is even heavier than that. We didn't think it was possible, but she is okay. heavier than that. Uh, that was a different beast. She was already big. Um, and so the idea was, which actually was very much like spirit and opportunity, the way we did it and Pathfinder before that, where basically, if you can imagine the Russian nesting dolls, so inside there's the lander and it has a computer and the computer is doing a thing, but then there's the Russian nesting doll of the thing that gets me from the parachute to the ground. There's the thing that gets me through the atmosphere. And then there's the thing that gets me from earth to Mars. And so actually, I mean, your listeners will probably be appalled. We actually have, compared to modern, we have very slow computers on board. Like 200 megahertz is a screaming fast computer on on a spaceship. Uh, Because you can imagine, actually, I had the experience when I was coming to India for the first time. And, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm kind of nervous. How am I going to find people? I had just upgraded my iPhone 10 (laughs) before I left. I hit the button and, yeah, software update. I got here. It was a brick. It couldn't do anything. It could barely show the clock. And that was a mistake. I should have never tried to upgrade my phone right before I was going into a different situation. Um, And so it's the same thing with space uh, electronics and and, and software and controls to a large extent. You don't want the first time you do it is on top of, you know, multi-billion dollar mission just about going to Mars. Uh, But anyway, so the computer is quite slow compared to modern computers. And then we only have a few gigabits of memory and and some of that's for data storage. And so we actually, which is a totally scary thought, we actually can't fit the software that both does what we call the cruise part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Launch is taken care of by other people. Rocket scientists take care of launch. Uh, We can't actually fit the cruise software and the landed software at the same time. There's just not enough physical memory. And so what we do is we launch with what we call the cruise load. And it has some basic information on how to be on the surface. Like, you know, you got to turn yourself off at night. You know, you don't have to worry about solar rays. You don't have to do this. So it's got some basic functionality, but it really is basic. And so our big um, effort, you know, very soon after we reach the surface and you kind of shake yourself off to say, okay, (laughs) is it okay? Is to now load the software that allows it to run on the surface. So its main function would be to switch the next thing on. Yes. And then sort of hand it over. It's yes. like a relay then, right? Where yeah. you kind of talk it's, to the it's next basically, It's basically some, I mean, if you could imagine like a baby, like, well, no, babies can't even do it. I was going to say, it knows how to keep itself warm. It knows how to communicate. That's like super key. And then right. it knows how to manage its power because I don't know, uh, perhaps people realize Uh, So most people know that Curiosity, for example, has a nuclear energy source on it. And what they don't realize is that perhaps is that it's not an exciting nuclear reactor. Nope. It's a little couple little tiny pellets of uh, nuclear material that basically just decays slowly, gets hot. And then it's not exactly a steam engine because we don't use water, but you use thermocouples basically to uh, to change the heat um, into energy. And so it's like, mm, well, that doesn't sound so exciting. It's a, it's a nuclear powered heater. It's basically a heater with natural decay. And the power output of the power plant that Curiosity has and the one that 2020 will have is about 100 watts. Okay. So it's a light bulb, a very right. bright light bulb. Um, and so actually one of the big things that the rover has to learn to do for itself that the cruise stage did not because the cruise stage has these big solar arrays. And so it basically gets infinite power as it's going. 
uh, with the rover, because it only has this 100 watts of energy, 100 watts will not run the rover. Like it can't, it could barely eke out like just its computers running and the pumps that it uses for thermal management. Uh, It can't run the radios, for example, at the same time, not on 100 watts straight up. And so what it has is a couple of big batteries inside. And so most of the time, you know, like certainly all night, which I mean, you're not going to drive at night anyway, for the same reason (laughs) you might not drive at night here. Uh, Most of the time it's using that 100 watts to charge up the batteries. Um, And so then with those big batteries, like they're like 80 amp hours for the, the total of the two batteries. Batteries. For maybe six, seven hours during the day, it can drive and it can do experiments and it can do something, something. But the rover has to be extremely conscientious of what its battery, what we call battery state of charge is, and then be able to shut itself down and more importantly, wake itself back up, um, you know, based on, you know, how much power is available. And all that has to be done with so much redundancy and so much, um, I mean, with so little error rates such yeah. that it can do this in a foreign environment millions and millions of miles away yeah. from us. Well, that's, I mean, there's a classic thing. Um, if you guys Google Seven Minutes of Terror, so there's a great video. My colleague, Adam Stelzer, hilarious, like just super, super into all this stuff. But one big point that he makes, which was absolutely valid, is... So at the time when Curiosity landed, and it'll be the same when 2020 lands, right? I mean, right. this is true for Mars missions in general. Depending on where Mars is, the light time, so the time it takes the radio waves to propagate, is non-zero. And in fact, when we landed Curiosity, it was something like 14 minutes. Right. So as that whole seven minutes of terror kind of implied, and, and I think you had mentioned from the top of the atmosphere when it gets exciting, right. um, it throws off the uh, solar rays and start. I mean, it has already thrown off the solar rays, and it's starting to scream down through the atmosphere. That, indeed, as they say, takes seven minutes. So okay. you can see the inherent dichotomy here, right? You know, Adam makes the point in the video, and it's true. By the time we would get notification that the thing had landed or not landed, it had actually happened seven minutes previous, right? Because there's a 14-minute delay. And so actually we spent a lot of time between Curiosity launch and landing, you know, because we were so busy going up to launch. I mean, I think this is probably true for a lot of places. Like you have to get the hardware right and it has to be able to survive out there. But if you're running late, which, you know, we were already late. I don't know if people know we, we missed the first uh, launch window for Curiosity. She was supposed to launch in 2009. Um, and a year before some very smart managers were looking around at the hardware coming in late and the software and they're like, nope, nope, we're we're going we're gonna to pull the plug on this. So she was already two years late in, in, in launching. So we weren't, we weren't going to do that again, right? I mean, you, you already do something bad and your you know, father's looking at you funny. So NASA's looking at us funny. You don't want to repeat that same mistake. So we needed to launch the hardware you know, with some capability. But then for entry, descent, and landing, actually, I moved over to do that uh, full-time right about launch. And we spent those nine months between launch and landing basically kind of like I think you implied, basically, you know, are we doing the right thing? Have we covered the right stuff? So, like, originally we were going to have uh, Curiosity fly in on all single-sided stuff. So like one computer, uh, one set of control electronics, you know, one pump going, like everything was one radio, everything was going to be single. And literally, you know, a few months in, we're like, ah, that doesn't feel right. But then, I mean, there's always a trade, like, you know, when you have a very, very fancy car with a lot of electronics in it, what goes wrong? 
the electronics, right? right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's supposed the, to make the it better. The car will perhaps work. Exactly. Um, and so we would have these debates. Like, we'd have 10 people in the room, and we'd be there till 8, 9 o'clock at night just debating. Well, if this went out, and then this happened, just running these scenarios through your head, because actually that, I mean, good for me, because I'm not a math person, but a lot of this stuff is so, um, I was going to say philosophical, but it's almost like a logic puzzle, you know, right. if this, then this, and it's really hard to write out in a deterministic way. What if that heater was still out? And what if it tried to swap heaters, but it turns out it had this problem and something, something, something. And so because of the fact that uh, we have this long time delay and it only takes seven minutes from the atmosphere, which is really the point of no return, though, honestly, weeks before then, we don't have a lot of chance to do a lot of things. So actually, about a week before uh, it was supposed to land, we sent up a command, which was, and I kid you not, it was do underscore EDL. Legit. So a week before we landed, we sent this command, and you'll love this because people think, oh, it's autonomous and it's you know fancy, whatever. No, no, no. So the whole landing sequence, which for the, the week right before landing is really just you know make sure that you have heaters going to heat the thrusters you're going to have to use and make sure the radios are in the right configuration. So it's not okay. much going on. It's basically cruising on its way right um, into the entry point in the atmosphere. But the way that we do it is for everything that it has to do, you know, release this ballast mass, you know, uh, control these thrusters, da, da, da. Um, it's a giant Excel spreadsheet. Okay. Um, and it has all the actions that it's supposed to do. And the actions have code behind them. Like, you know, when you say, right. you know, warm up the thruster heaters, for example, like there's some software that knows how to do that. Right. But the actual, this is the action you have to do. Like there's a line in the Excel spreadsheet that has that. Um, and it says how long it should take. It ha- says how long you're allowed to take. Uh, because one other thing with, you know, an entry descent and landing, when, say, I'm driving my car and a red light comes on, I might be like, mm, I should get that checked. Uh, if you're landing and you have one shot, it's like, you know what? I'm going to just hope that works. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to. So there was this definite um, philosophy of uh, just go for it. You know, no matter what kind of things you see going wrong that would normally make the spacecraft stop and think about it. No, no, no. You just keep going. So the spreadsheet very much has this. Like, it'll try to do the stuff. Um, but if any of those actions had failed, it would just move down to the next action. Okay. So we have this giant Excel spreadsheet. And you're thinking, wow, that doesn't seem very high tech. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we would feed that into a, a software kind of engine and it would create the actual software commands out of it. But that's how that thing landed. And we actually had some debates. You know, I talked about it having to basically go ballistic on itself, like it, not ballistic in, in that real sense, but basically just, you know, as we say in English, damn the torpedoes, just do whatever it has to do. Um, one of the things that we do is we actually turn off fault protection. So the things that it would normally do to protect itself, like I mentioned, like it go into safe mode or swap things, we're like, nope, you don't allow, you're not allowed to do any of that. And so we had some big debates like right before landing um, about, well, what if we disabled fault protection earlier or later um, and how that would really work, like how we could actually – you know, if people had a chance to intervene, like, what would we do? Like, we're already, when we see a problem, the problem happened 14 minutes ago. Uh-huh. Now people who are already nervous are going to try to come to a good decision, which, of course, will not work. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's going to take 14 minutes for it to get there. And we, 
So we really had to convince ourselves. I mean, so I, all the if then else need to be mapped uh, out. Uh, have well to be, yeah. And so I, what you said starts off as a new philosophical or a abstract discussion becomes something that you have to make a deterministic yeah. decision model out of yeah. a decision tree. And you have to. And the thing is, is you have to convince other humans that you're doing the right thing because you right. know at some point we would always joke, not joke. Um, well, what are we going to tell the congressional, like the U.S.? What are we going to tell the congressional hearing? <laughs> you know that we could have done something right. because um, there's a lot of public money riding on this a lot of public money there has to be accountability and yeah so that's actually a very very good way of putting it so actually you know you talk about the challenges and everything the thing i like about the stuff we do is not the stuff where you can just write the equations out and get the answer i kind of like that uncertainty where you have to make a judgment call right. and say well you know what there's no right or wrong answer. This is the best answer that we have. And some people are very uncomfortable with that. Like even engineers are very uncomfortable, you know, unless they can prove it to themselves, you know, mathematically or, or whatever, you know, they don't want to make a call. And we had some people like that who'd be like, well, there's, you know, here's the two things. And I'd be like, okay, well, which one are we going to choose? And they're like, well, you can't choose. And I'm like, well, we have to choose. Like you said, you have to have that decision tree. And they were stymied. Because there was no right answer, and so therefore, I don't know, there was no answer at all. And, and here, um, what amazed me is you actually preempted my question of what happens, uh, what work would you be doing, you know, say for the Mars 2020 mission after launch and before it gets to Mars. And it's amazing that while the software and the hardware are already, obviously already preset, <laughs> a lot of these decisions get finalized later. The decision trees get finalized even in that period because I'm guessing you'd be busy doing a lot of other things yes, yes. before the launch. Yeah. So that is simply amazing. Uh, could you tell us a little more about these constraints? So you were talking about 200 megahertz only mm -hmm. as the computing power. Is it because you need these to be electronics that are sort of space grade that can tolerate a lot of um, radiation, a lot of other stresses from temperature to other things? Because now we are seeing commercial electronics reach the low Earth orbit, right, mm -hmm. with CubeSats and with a lot of other things. But when we're talking about deep space and interplanetary missions, the electronics are fundamentally different from the consumer electronics that we're used to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's, you're exactly right. There's kind of two elements that we look for and, and parts are huge. Like anytime anybody is building anything, it's all about the electronic parts and the, the reliability that you can uh, think that you're going to get from them. Um, so there's kind of two sides. So one are parts that are generally robust um, and that can tend to be older technologies, right? I mean, you imagine the car that doesn't have a lot of electronics in it versus the cars that have, you know, tons and tons of electronics in it. Uh, so that's, that's kind of true, too. I mean, that's one side of it. Uh, but then the other side are parts that also you ha just have some history with, like me with my iPhone 10 right. doing the upgrade. That was a mistake to do it the first time on my basically one shot. This is my first trip to India. That was a mistake to try something new when I was going into an environment that was completely, completely different to me. So the thing with commercial electronics a lot is, so two things. One is what we say the process is not as controlled because right. if you're making a billion chips, now 
this is getting to be more less and less true, right? Because there's real money riding on this. And when you're putting a million chips through, you don't want to have chips falling off the process because, you know, they've been, uh, they've been damaged or they weren't put together right or, or that sort of thing. So the process control is getting better and better. What process control gives you is if I pick this part off the line and I test the snot out of it to make sure that it can work, if I take the second part off the line, I have some understanding that it's going to be the same, that it's going to be equally right. reliable. With commercial processes, that has not been as true, but could be getting more true. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, we talk about, like, you have FPGAs, so you have programmable Gatorades, kind of like little teeny brains that work, you know, like in a car, say, again, you know, some might do the radio, some might do the ignition system, some might do the automatic traction control, whatever it is. If one of those goes bad, you pull off to the side of the road and, you know, your car gets fixed. But because we're sending these things into space and they even just to get where they're going, you know, might take eight months or whatever. So they have to survive that. But, you know, we're not 100 percent sure. Like we think we've built in the temperature range. Like we buy parts that are guaranteed from minus 55 to plus 125 C. That's pretty extreme for a lot of parts. Yeah. You know, parts that can stand up under radiation. You know, you kind of mentioned that uh, both from kind of an aging point of view that's just getting this what we call the total dose but also where energetic particles come in and flip a bit or you know cause a problem um we just don't have the luxury of pulling it back and replacing those parts so like you said a bit so number one uh it's about uh parts reliability but then number two uh it's about redundancy at least for things that we we really care about that we have to have so a lot of times the science instrumentation will have little to no redundancy, maybe redundant power supplies because power supplies are a thing that can go bad. Uh, but generally, you wouldn't have two of the same instrument, for example. There's just not the the, the room and, you know, the money, of course. Uh, but like for flight computers, almost inevitably you're going to have two flight computers because you can't afford if one goes bad. Like Curiosity's had problems with its memory uh, on the flight computers and, you know, we've always been able to recover, but, you know, it, it does seem to be true that some of the parts, you know, might have gone bad, you know, but like I said, it's working, but you, you want to have that other computer to fall back on while you figure out how to work the, the first one. So um, one other number, if I can ask, when you're communicating with um, a rover or a lander or even an orbiter, what kind of bit rates do you get? I mean, when we're talking about deep space communication, how much information can you send? Uh, yeah, I, so you... Because you also need to receive a lot of imagery and so on, and that's quite yeah. heavy, right? Yeah. Well, it's, um, so the radio's the communication link that you generally, uh, that you can get is is basically all about the distance, right? So if you're at Mars, you're at a certain distance. Right. With a rover, especially, like if I was doing a Mars habitat, sure, I could put a giant antenna dish on there and a giant transmitter, right. and we'd be all good. But of course, with a rover rolling around, you, you can't do that. Um, and so what we do certainly at Mars and presumably we will be doing at the moon, not exactly for distance, but because sometimes you're out of sight of the earth is we cheat um, and we put relay radios uh, okay. in orbit. Yeah. So rather than me with my little teeny, well, teeny, it's the size of a car, but still compared to uh, the distance to earth with my little rover, uh, rather than it having to go direct to earth, which we still do, what it does, so usually with the rover, the commanding comes direct to earth because 
they do the commands overnight and, 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 you know, they're ready to go. And then the command file is usually pretty small. It's basically do this, do this, do that, do the other thing. And, you know, kind of like if I left you a to-do list on the refrigerator, you know, like, honey, you know, I need you to, to, to go to the supermarket, whatever. I don't need to tell you how, what it takes to go to the supermarket. Like you already have that built in. And so the Rover has that too. And so we would send uh, a command file up from the ground uh, every day to tell the Rover what to do. But as you point out the data coming back, you know, you have images, you, you know, you have spectrogram, you have all this stuff. Um, and so that data generally comes back through one of these relay orbiters. So we have several um, orbiters, including Mars reconnaissance orbiter, uh, Maven, um, the uh, trace gas orbiter, which is actually a European orbiter, that all have relay radios on board. And okay. so Curiosity 2020 will have both, uh, and InSight, I think, has both as well, um, will have a radio that can talk directly to Earth, but then we'll also have a radio that specifically, you know, it's a different frequency band, it's a different uh-huh. protocol. Um, we'll have one that can talk to the orbiter. So generally, it goes up direct from Earth, very low rate, you know, maybe on the order of kilobits. So you I, probably don't remember dial-up modem, but anyway, I, I do, I oh, that has so. like the terrible tones yes, and whatever. Yes, yeah, it's I grew up kind on that. Of, it's like dial-up internet. Uh, so generally, that'll be going forward. But then coming back, we can get you know on the order of two fifty six five twelve k, which for spacecraft is enormous. But again, five twelve is technically broadband in India. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. So we have broadband reception so download speeds yes <laughs> from mars are broadband by indian standards and upload speeds are slower. Uh, yes oh yes but i mean you know obviously we'd love to have huge pipes going both ways but all things being equal you know unless we're doing a software load in which case we're really sitting around and that's all we're doing for a few days there's just not that much need to send a lot of data up But obviously, there's a need to send, you know, a lot of data down. And so letting those two links operate essentially independently, not tying one to the other, makes a lot of sense. So in this entire process, you've been now a part of multiple Mars missions and there's a new one coming up. Any particular points that you get a lot of joy out of that, that you think is a particularly complex puzzle to solve or something that's very rewarding in this process? Yeah. Um, so yeah, actually, you know, I talked about, I actually like the uncertainty. I like making decisions that aren't, you know, obvious decisions and whatever. Um, I think, so I actually came to JPL right out of undergrad and I've worked at JPL my whole life. Uh, people probably realize that NASA, big NASA, um, there's like a dozen NASA centers. I I could add them up. There are different places. And so ISRO, it's very akin to ISRO where Uh ISRO has a lot uh, of locations. Um, and for example, like when I grew up, I grew up by Kennedy Space Center where we do the launches, which I'm going to try this word. Sri Harikota? Yes. Yes. Uh, where Israel does launches. So very similar uh, in missions in those two places. And, you know, I don't know about Sri Harikota, but certainly Kennedy, they really focus on the rocket launches. Like that is their raison d'etre. GPL is much more like uh, the Space Application Center in right. Amenabad, where, yes, it's about the missions. You know, it's about, you know, kind of concepts, like what kind of science questions are we trying to ask and, and what would it take to do that? 
Um, and I would say that, you know, as I've gone in my career, I'm actually not the lead system engineer for, for 2020 anymore. I took um, a couple or a year or two ago, uh, I took a job as a manager of systems engineering. Okay. Um, and so now the people who do that system engineering for 2020 work for me, but also the people that are doing it for Europa Clipper, the people who are doing it for NISAR, the mm-hmm. uh, NASA ISRO Synthetic Aperture Radar Mission, which we're really, really excited about. So I get... Now, at this point in my career, I really get to see the big picture of all the missions and, and JPL is in, you know, sort of a good, bad position where we generally propose to NASA, like, these are the things that we want to do. And then, you know, NASA, depending on the funding and, and the interest from scientists, will say yes or no. But I like that sort of strategic, like, where would we go next? Like, what questions are we going to ask about Europa? What does Mars sample return look like? Like, how does 2020 fit into the overall three mission series that would get us Mars sample return? So it's nice after, you know, years of building stuff and then kind of more years of, like, I'm focusing on my spacecraft and what do I need to do to get my spacecraft? done it's nice to be you know part of the group now that sits back and says well no what do we jpl want to do like what do we want to do what does the space program what what should we be doing and by the way earth science is a big focus uh, for jpl too so i would say it's still that kind of you know not easy answers you know kind of non-linear thinking but now at a bigger than one spacecraft uh, sort of perspective kind of more like what does space exploration look like and in this, like you mentioned earlier, JPL is an institution that has actually not focused on jet propulsion for <laughs> quite a while now. With NASA having its own future, how does JPL sort of look at itself as an institution? Because like NASA now, JPL has a global presence and an image. Everyone knows about jet propulsion labs. What's sort of the vision and sort of the idea of JPL and what it wants to be now in the 21st century? That's a that's a great question. And I'll tell you, it's one that we struggle with ourselves. I think if we are not struggling with those questions, then probably we have the wrong answers. Thank right? you. That's actually brilliant. That's actually brilliant. Yeah. So the idea is, so JPL, even though we are not civil servants, like I don't work directly for the government, right. we work for the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, and Caltech runs JPL on behalf of NASA. So we okay. are NASA, but we are not uh, civil servants uh, per se. So in, um, in that sense, is it similar to, say, the Los Alamos laboratory and other it's things? Exactly, it's okay. exactly. It's exactly. But, but on space and not on... Exactly. And it's, it's what's called a federally funded research and development okay. uh, center. So, I mean, people write that down because that'll be important. <laughs> anyway, so so we're definitely nonprofit. Uh, you know, we're not making money off of this. And so then the idea is, you know, kind of as opposed to any nonprofit philanthropic, you know, maybe place, it's like, well... Besides just perpetuating ourselves, you know, that there is a JPL in the future, you know, where, what do we want to get into? Where should we be positioning? We've been very, very lucky that in the U.S. space program, we've really been uh, one of the key centers for robotic space exploration. And we see ourselves probably always continuing that. So we're very intrigued by the whole Artemis program and the mission to the moon. And we're thinking about, well, how can we contribute to that? It would probably be in like robotic robotic exploration, robotic prospecting. Um, I like to say a little bit jokingly, we don't like to get into the human business because humans are messy and they need to eat and drink and whatever. And that's kind of not our deal, but we have other NASA centers that focus specifically on that. So we see JPL being kind of a pathfinder place and a technology uh, and robotic exploration place. And hopefully that'll be a good complement to the overall drive of NASA and then NASA pulling in international partners and industrial partners to do this next step 
step, you know, permanent presence on the moon and then eventually Mars. Thank you so much. And I think that no matter where humans might end up going, we will need robots to get there first (laughs) and sort of pave the way for us, find the path for us, right? And I'm also really looking forward to how robotic missions can sort of sit alongside human missions and sort of work together. We've seen enough examples from science fiction. It can go bad. It can go good or good or bad. Yes. (laughs) Uh, No, absolutely. That's a really good way of looking at it. And and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what's to come in the coming two, three years with Mars 2020 and beyond. Thank you so much for coming on the Pragati Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Pava. This has been really, really fun. I hope your listeners got something out of this. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing? We could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified, a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya! Hello everyone, I'm Zane. I'm Avanti. And welcome back to a brand new season of Marvel's Lost and Found. A show on mental health and its stigma and we're kind of making it an open conversation. Pretty much, yeah. And we're really, really excited about this season because we have a number of guests on and we'll be talking about things like addiction. Grief. Children and mental health. Exactly, children and mental health. And our listeners have also written in this time. Yeah, and and we have an episode dedicated to that. Yes, and guys, thank you so much for writing and we really, really appreciate it. And we're really excited for you to tune in on Tuesdays on the IVM website or app or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can find Marbles Lost and Found on Facebook or you can find Marbles Lost and Found on Instagram as well. Uh, The handle being Marbles Podcast India. Can't wait for you to tune in. Thank you very much. See you guys soon.